when I was a kid, when I was your age, every, uh, every preteen in our church where I grew up was required to memorize a psalm from the Bible. We had to memorize a psalm. Now, I have to tell you, we kids didn't look at this the same way as our youth leaders and parents did. They saw this as an important and excellent activity. After all, it had been a part of that denomination for hundreds of years. Hundreds of years of preteens had memorized a psalm. They knew that it was important to write Scripture on your heart. People grow up. They live differently as a result. It's all wonderful. But we kids saw this as an obtuse drudgery. We couldn't believe that our draconian leaders would make us memorize an entire chapter of the Bible. Ah, it was just insane. One elder at our church, knowing we were struggling with, he pulled me aside, <clears throat> very wise man who had loved me all my life, pulled me aside and he said, hey, Wayne, you love said about Psalm, having to memorize Psalm? Yeah. He said, just do Psalm 1. Do Psalm 1. It's easy. It's simple, easy to memorize. I said, thanks. So when we stood in front of our youth leader and he said, okay, what are y'all going to do? I said, Psalm 1. I want Psalm 1. I'll take that one. And it was easy. And most importantly, I have never forgotten the truth contained in Psalm 1. Never forgotten it. A couple of years later after that, I was riding in a boat. I was at that same elder's lake house. He was even older now. And I was at his lake house and he and I were in the boat together. And he looked at me and said, hey, do you still remember Psalm 1? And it turned out I did. Blessed is he who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But I, I, I knew it just rolled right off my tongue. And he said, that's really cool. And then he dropped the whole truth on me. He said, you know why I steered you towards Psalm 1? He said, Wayne, it's for the same reason the Hebrews put it very first in their collection. It contains one of the big themes of all the Psalms, how to live wisely. In fact, Living wisely is a theme of the whole Bible, son. And then he added this little nugget. He said, by the way, I didn't just encourage you to choose Psalm 1 because it was easier to memorize. Others are easier. I thought it was best for you. Old people are so tricky. <laughs> I'm not old enough to be that sneaky, so I'll just tell you straight that my childhood elder was correct. Psalm 1 is a brilliant summary of wisdom. And since our task today is to learn the truth about wisdom, this is a great place to start. Let me put it this way. Just like me, you need Psalm 1. Open your Bible, if you would, to Psalm 1. Let's read verses 1 through 3, the first half of this brilliant piece of literature. Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3. How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He's, he's like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. <clears throat> As we say in your notes there in your bulletin, rooting in Scripture brings prosperity of wisdom. Rooting in Scripture brings prosperity of wisdom. Look up here, if you would, a summary. I've got a summary statement for you on the screen. Studying Scripture, this is a summary of Psalm 1, 1 through 3. Studying Scripture is critical for the well-being of God's people. Rooting oneself in the Bible is absolutely essential for a blessed life, all right? Take a second, read that little statement, and absorb it. I just want to ask you a question. Do you agree with that statement, yes or no? Okay, yeah, I do too. All right, let, let's add... Let's add to it. Let's add this applicational word onto it. Studying Scripture is critical for the well-being of God's people. Rooting oneself in the Bible is absolutely essential for a blessed life. However, many Christians are not making Bible study a priority. As a result, they do not see the connection between God's Word and true success. Now, look at that one. Think about it. 
Do you agree with that further statement? Yes or no? Do you agree with that? I do as well. And in response, I read that, I think about that, and all I have to say is, thank goodness we're not like those people, right? We always root ever more strongly in Scripture, and thus you and I always live wisely, right? Maybe not, which is precisely why you and I need today's reminder from the Psalms. Let's start by making sure we understand the text. A key term, very key term, is ashrei, Hebrew verb, uh, word that we translate blessed or how happy. Um, this is frankly less a material issue than it is a spiritual one. The emphasis in Hebrew is on the state of joy in a, in a person who is overcome with God's blessing. It's not about the amount of stuff they have. Does that make sense? The, the issue with ashrei is, is not that the person rooted in the Scripture always wins. It is not that the person rooted in Scripture is, always gets rich. The point is that he or she is joyful in God and His Word. The, the world around is not getting God's person off track because he or she is instead astray. They, they are absorbed with God's eternal words. That, that's why verse 3, go down to verse 3, it mustn't be miscast as some kind of promise of earthly wealth. That can happen. No, no, no you're right. Yeah, they can happen. By the way, People often do get wealthy when they live out God's Scripture. That's fine. But the Hebrew term solah, what we translate prospers, while it can indicate financial wealth, by the way, solah can indicate it's often used for winning a political battle. But here, it is much more likely referring to living out successfully what God has instructed in the Bible. Notice the tree. Don't miss the simile, okay? A tree is fruitful when it takes in raw materials of God's provided nutrients, right? Because then it blooms, then it grows, it provides oxygen, it provides shade, it eventually provides baseball bats, right? All the important things in life. There's nothing more important than baseball bats, let's be honest. It, it, it provides all the things that God made it to do because it turns God's provision into a blessing to God's world. I was discussing this with Martin McDonald, member of our pulpit team. He sent a great observation. Look what Martin wrote me. He said, Wayne, the Hebrew semantic rage of prosperity, so la, does include financial wealth. However, given the tree metaphor, fruitful, not withering, the psalm seems to indicate that we will be successful at fulfilling that for which we are made. Do you, you see this plant right here? I borrowed this from our conference room uh, at the church. As long as this plant stays uh, rooted in this soil, as long as it's here and it has the provisions that it needs, what's it going to do? It's going to grow. It's going to be healthy. It's going to be green. It's going to be fine. But what about this one? I grabbed this piece of mother-in-law's tongue, and it is unrooted, right? If I leave it in this state, I leave it unrooted, how long will it stay green like this? Not very long. Hopefully to the end of the next service. It would be nice. It's, not, it's getting a little wilty already. Uh, it's not going to last. Guys, you and I are made to grow and flourish by rooting in and living out the word that God has provided. It's how we live wisely. Amen? There's a great parallel in Psalm 119. Let's read verse 1 together. Psalm 119, verse 1, all together. How happy are those whose way is blameless, who live according to the Lord's instruction. Thank you. Psalm 37 is another parallel psalm. Uh, 37 also discusses a life well lived. Many of the verses in Psalm 37 deal with prosperity that comes from rooting in Scripture. And then verses 4 through 6 of Psalm 37 pop out with this insight. Take a look. 
Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, this is one of those passages that is often misunderstood, even abused. I actually watched a lady. (sighs) Amazing. I watched a lady teach that verse 4 in Psalm 37 is saying that if you will just act happy with God, he will give you anything you want. Anything, and she meant material, any material thing at all that you desire, God has to give you. What a pile of cow manure. Look at verse 6. It specifically lists the blessing as non-material. Righteousness and justice are not material things. In actuality, this text is teaching me how God changes my desires, right? Think, when I root in His Word, when I delight in Him, I am changed. What I want, the desires of my heart become different, healthier, more in line with Scripture. Let, let, me, just, let me just ask you, you wonderful August group of people, let me ask you this. How many of you have spent significant time in your life really rooting in Scripture. You've really studied Scripture quite a bit in your life. Don't be shy. Raise your hand. If you've studied Scripture quite a bit, raise your hand. Okay, quite a few of you. All right, a bunch of you. Let me, let me just, to that group, let me just ask this. After all that time in God's Word, do you still desire now the same kinds of things you used to want before you spent that time rooting in Scripture. Are your desires the same now as they used to be then? Just yes or no? Yes or no? No. They're not. They never are. Wisdom is found by rooting oneself in Scripture. Wisdom comes to fools like me when we delight in the author of Scripture. Doing so, our desires are changed because our hearts are changed. Two of my friends recently wrote me about this. One woman said this. She said, God does indeed change the desires of my heart to match his own. It is nothing short of miraculous, she said, when you catch yourself seemingly suddenly to want what God says is best. You ever experienced that? A fellow wrote me this. He said, Wayne, a few years ago I've been asking the Lord that I would be able to taste and see that the Lord is good, that that I would delight myself in him, Psalm 37. I'm amazed at how he's answered those prayers. There are moments now that my experience of him is overwhelming and indescribable, far better than any sweet thing I've ever eaten. I don't want the same things I did before, close quote. All God's people said, amen. Amen. May it be so. There's more to learn about wisdom in the Psalms. Look again at verse 1 of Psalm 1. Back to verse 1. We see that wisdom is found in fleeing wickedness. Flee wickedness. Verse 1. How happy is the man, Ashrei, who does not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path of sinners or join a group of mockers. There's a very important negative that goes along with the positive of rooting in the Bible. The negative is, we don't accept influence from that which is evil. (laughs) Of course, you know, even mentioning evil or wrong or wicked can get a teacher in trouble today. You do know how screwed up your world is, right? Let, let Let me just put it this way. In this age... After this message airs, after it it airs, I will almost certainly, almost certainly get some note like this. Now, I may not because I'm saying this this time, but normally I would get a note like this, okay? And the note would say, um, the note would say, oh, did I miss it? Uh, Here it is, okay. I can't believe you mentioned that certain things are evil. How judgmental and close-minded. There's no such thing as good and evil just as there are no absolutes at all. Ah. Right? I sound like Jimmy Neutron's teacher. Um... 
Hilariously, by the way, that is itself an absolute statement. Um, but I'll let that pass. My reply, my reply is going to be, I think, probably a kindly stated version of what a friend of mine told me, a very wise man in East Texas told me once, and I quote, it is not closed-minded to differentiate between chocolate chips and bunny droppings. <laughs> He's right. If you want bunny poo in your brownings, that's on you, all right? I prefer chocolate chips, and I intend to discern between the two. That is not judgmental. It's wise. So what are the bunny droppings that tend to get into our brownies? Let me back up. I forgot to show you that, uh, that Psalm 37 says much the same. Psalm 37, verse 1, do not be agitated by evildoers. Do not envy those who do wrong. Okay, now look at that, and let's think about our lives. What are the bunny droppings that God knows get into our lives? He lists them right here. Look, uh, advice of the wicked. The path of, by the way, path in the Psalms always means a lifestyle. It's a li the lifestyle of sinners, mocking evildoers, envy toward those who do wrong. Do you ever feel drawn to those things? Do you ever feel those things creeping into your thought process? I do. Sure I do. There are times, there are times I look at people whom I know firsthand are crooked in their dealings, and I see them prospering financially, and I think, man, I wish I had all that stuff. Right? That's envy toward those who do wrong. Our world has entire industries devoted to that way of thinking. Or consider, consider being sarcastic or mocking or wicked. After all, that is what I see and hear around me all the time, every single day. Please don't misunderstand. Listen, as we're going to see later, God wants us to learn from the world. He does. He wants us to learn shrewdness and skill from even the worst people around us. We can. We should be astute. But that's not the same thing as absorbing worldly wickedness. If I draw my marching orders from the evil of the world around me, I lose the blessing. Look at your text. I can't be really flourishing in Scripture if I'm also embracing influences that are flat out wrong. Combination poo and chocolate brownies aren't partly okay and partly not okay. Right? In the immortal words of Arnold Schwarzenegger, they're all bad. Right? <laughs> this, is why, this is why I have talked about Toon Touch as we have discussed reforming our church. We... We must only be in tune with God's word. We cannot take our tune from the world or resonate with wickedness. We must resonate with Scripture alone. That doesn't mean that we ignore or refuse to care for the world. Perish the thought. God calls us to go into the world and do his great commission. We're supposed to sacrifice. We're even supposed to suffer so that God's church can ever be in touch with God's world, growing, reaching, drawing people to Jesus. We flee wickedness not to hide away in a monastery, but to be in tune with God's word only and in touch with God's world. Amen? Now, of course, sacrificing to touch the world can be scary. That's why wisdom also involves trusting God. Notice that headline on the right side of our notes. Wisdom involves trusting God. Psalm 37 goes on to say this. Psalm 37, 7 through 9. Be silent before the Lord and wait expectantly for him. Do not be agitated by the one who prospers in his way, by the man who carries out evil plans. Refrain from anger. Give up your rage. Do not be agitated. It can only bring harm. For evildoers will be destroyed. But those who put their hope in the Lord will inherit the land. Two contextual Hebraisms we must grasp if we're going to completely understand what God is saying here. First, be silent. See that? Verse 7. That, 
in, in Hebrew thought, be silent seems to be a very harsh command. In fact, shut up would probably be a better translation. And I know that carries heavy connotations today. I said that on purpose. It's a judgment turn. It concerns humble people who need to shut up and let God teach them. This is what's behind Job chapter 6, uh, verse 24. Uh, Job says, teach me and I'll, I'll be silent. I will shut my mouth. Help me understand what I did wrong. Same thing much later in Habakkuk. God has this marvelous revelation of his righteous judgment in chapter 2. And then in verse 20, we read this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be what, everybody? Silent before him. And on and on it goes in passage after passage. The point is be silent is often a tip-off that human sin is being judged and people need to listen to God's correction. Second thing to understand is a statement in verse 9. Go down in verse 9 where it says, Those who hope in Yahweh will inherit the land. Now, now this applies to us in a slightly different way than it did to the Jews who first heard this song when, uh, when God played it on the Iron Age equivalents of FM radio in Jerusalem. Um, the Hebrews knew that according to Moses' law, Israel was promised secure land as long as they followed Yahweh and not the world around them, not their own sinful hearts. Now, Moses' law is fulfilled in Jesus. But, but... Don't throw it away. The principles are still applicable to us. If you and I want to dwell securely in life, we need to hope only in Yahweh, not in politics, not in systems, not in people, not even in protest. God alone. You got it? Yahweh is being very stern here. He's telling us the only way to have peace in our lives is to trust God. It is the only wise thing to do. Is that what we do? Do we hope in the Lord, or do we just get caught up in the rage all around us? Think of it this way. Suppose you're, you're at your kid's basketball game, okay, and, and you're excited for him or for her. You, you know this is, uh, this is great health, it's great exercise. You're really delighted to be with all those other parents because it's one of your few opportunities where you really get to be in long conversations with non-Christians with chances to get to know them and invite them to church. It's all good, right? Everything's good until... The game starts and the other parents open their mouths, right? These people are insane. It's like they're all together trying out for the role of extras in the, in the gladiator scenes in the remake of, of, a, of a Russell Crowe movie. They're, they're calling for blood. People are crazy, right? And then that idiot referee makes a blatantly bad call. No one, no one is that blind. He had to have been paid off by the other team. I mean, it's the only explanation. It doesn't make any sense. And then, and then the coach's kid, the ball hog, she just keeps going up and down the court, holding the ball all the time. Nobody else ever touches the ball, and the coach is smiling like thinks that's a great idea. And then that kid, that horrible kid that you haven't seen since last season, comes running in and nearly decapitates your child. Seriously. Now, at that moment, I ask you, what are you thinking? <laughs> what are you caught up in? Rage, Right? Just like the rage all around you. It's not just on social media, folks. Rage, rage is all the rage, okay? And the answer to rage is wisdom. The answer to the norm of rage is trusting Yahweh, to be silent before Him, to be conscious of judgment on my own sin. Wisdom requires being patient and trusting God's timing, His certain and ultimate justice that is to come. Speaking of justice, wisdom demands. Last thing about wisdom, it demands that one prepare for God's judgments. Major part of Psalm 1. 
In fact, the second half of it is all about being wise, preparing for judgment that is to come. Go, go up and read again the second half of Psalm 1, starting at verse 4. The wicked are not like this. Talking about wise. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment, and sinners will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. This is long-term. It is inexorable. The way of the wicked will perish. They will be like chaff that gets blown away in the breath of God's judgment, while the one who trusts in Yahweh will be gathered in as good grain that remains. The Bible goes on to show, and I know many of you know this, but there are actually two judgments for human beings. The great white throne judgment is for those who reject God the Son. And they are judged as described in Revelation chapter 20. They are at that bar because they refuse to trust God. They refuse to take His word. And while they are there, all of their deeds will be exposed. And their deeds will be exposed as every one of them tainted with human sin. By contrast, the Bema judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, is only for Christians. And here, Jesus will give rewards for those who trust Jesus, and those rewards are going to be based on how well we used our opportunities to glorify God. Now, you look at those and you realize that wise living is not just about here and now. Wisdom prepares for the judgments that are for certain to come. Thomas Campbell and I were discussing this the other day in relation to the capital campaign going on here at our home church Thomas and his wife, Renee Campbell, are the, uh, the chairs of our Imagine campaign. And on top of that, as some of you know, uh, Thomas is an excellent Bible teacher. And in our conversation, I heard such fabulous insights from Thomas that I asked him to come and take the pulpit for a few minutes today, something I, I rarely ever do. I asked him to come and share with you. It, it so intrigued me. I wanted to share with you what he told me about wisdom and about how we prepare for God's judgments that are to come. Give Thomas a hand. We're so glad you're here. Thank you, brother. Thank you. <clears throat> All right, where is, we, I want to start because our parallel passage we picked this up on was in Matthew chapter 6. And in 9 through uh, uh, 24, it says, Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, the whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. And if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. Jesus states a principle here. We are always investing and or accumulating treasure, either way you want to look at it. Doing so is not the question. Where and why is? What we invest in, where, you know, how we spend our time, our talents, our treasures are things that either move us toward God or away from Him. Now, Jesus places His comment on the eye in the middle of His statement on wealth management. What He's recalling is an earlier beatitude said what? Blessed are the pure in heart. So what I think about, what I gaze on, what I obsess about, that reveals my character. If the eye is simple, sincere, single-minded, then the body's in good shape. Thus, how to accumulate is really a hard issue. But what is the right approach? If this is so important, how do I do this well? Well, Christ doesn't answer it here. He answers it, I think, in Luke chapter 13, uh, sorry, chapter 16, the first 13 verses. Now, we're going to flip over there. This is an odd little uh, uh, parable, so let's read through this. He said to his disciples, there was a rich man who received an accusation that his manager was squandering his possessions. 
He called the manager in and said, what's this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what am I going to do? My master has taken my management away from me. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. He summoned each of his master's debtors. How much do you owe my master, he asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil. Quick, take your invoice, write 50. Next one he asked, how much do you owe? hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted astutely. For the sons of this age are more astute than the sons of light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of the unrighteous money so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. Whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with the unrighteous money, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No household slave can be the slave of two masters, since either he will hate the one or love the, and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't be slaves to both God and money. So, first thing we need to know is that both of these sections of scriptures basically end the same way. You can't serve God and money. So tying them together feels like I think we're on pretty firm ground. What does this passage in Luke have to say about accumulating wealth in heaven? Verse 8 is the clue. In a word, being astute or shrewd. Now, in the movie Goosebumps, R.L. Stein is asked about storytelling, and I like the way that he responds. Echoes to Christ's approach. He says every story has three parts, the beginning, the middle, and the twist, right? Jesus uses this all the time in parables. Think about the Good Samaritan, the um, parable of the prodigal son. This guy here in Luke, the twist is for this fired manager whose only redeeming quality appears to be his shrewdness. Now, this is not what I would list among my top five characteristics for a disciple, would you? Right? We look at this and go, how is this guy the hero when he's the villain? But the biggest insight in this whole thing comes from that word manager or steward. So what we want to do with this is, you know, it's Christ is saying there's another worldly side to us that needs to be what? Realistic, astute, um, tough, and word shrewd. Let's go back to verse 2. It's important to note the manager's precise position after his master's words, give an account of your stewardship. See, most of the time when I'm fired or you're fired, what happens? We go right down to HR, our stuff's in a box, or we're given a box, we go right back to our office and we pack it up, right? This guy, a little bit different, right? His dismissal is inevitable, but it hasn't happened. It's not final, it's not public, and until that accounting is rendered, he has some room to maneuver. His time is short, action needs to be taken immediately, he has none to waste. And his options limited, his shrewdness is revealed in a plan to ingratiate himself to people who are, he hopes will help him. So, here it's the plan. He partially cancels the debts of some of his master's debtors, thereby currying favor with these people. Now this is where it gets tricky for us. This is why when we read this parable, we wonder what's going on. In the 21st century, what it looks like he's doing is just one more bad act, another illegal maneuver. However, in the first century, Jews couldn't charge Jews interest. 
That's what Deuteronomy says, chapter 23. And there's something that we're overlooking here. These are debtors. They owe the master a debt. So how do you conduct future commercial transactions without charging interest? How do you get in debt in that situation? Well, one of the ways that they did it is what we would call a zero-interest loan. It's a little bit of subterfuge here. When they loaned the money, a single bill or invoice was written that included the principal plus the interest plus the manager's fees. And since the amount was written in commodities, not money, oil, wheat, etc., it looked like they were doing what? Working underneath the Mosaic Law. So when, it, when he goes off and, and does this with the debtors, when he works his magic with the debtors, what he's doing is both subtle and probably legal. So why does the master praise him? Since interest charges were not legal to begin with, right, the master has no grounds against him. The debtors are probably pretty suspicious of the discount, but quite happy to receive him, right? And of course, he stayed within the bounds of legality and he ingratiated himself to these people so they will think of him kindly once he's released from his position. Now it's important to see what the master says and doesn't say in this. The master does not say he is pleased with the actions. The master is what? Impressed. He is impressed with how this man achieved future ends and that is acting shrewdly. I put this in your notes. His actions, are dubious as they are, have a quality that Christ wants to see demonstrated by his disciples if we are to effectively live in this world. This is the dishonest manager's quality. He acts decisively in the present to position himself for the future. His behavior is consistent with his circumstances. He recognizes his crisis, he seizes his opportunity because he has his eye on the future, not just the present. He is astute enough to act with practical cleverness and judgment. Look at verses 9 through 13. Christ makes these points. Shrewdness with money can achieve eternal ends, and stewardship with money has eternal consequences. The Lord makes clear that mammon has enormous power. It, it's not neutral. Money is not neutral. When it's not placed under his authority, it has the ability to become a rival god and lead us into evil. Just, you know, there is a limit to wealth. When it fails is not a reference to debt, it's a reference to death. Shrewdness forces us to recognize that money is powerful, but limited, temporary, and temporal. Part of its character is that it is always going to fail. So shrewdness with money is also focused on how we can use it for eternal purposes, to gain friends so that we are welcomed by them into eternal dwellings. The Lord is not calling us to sinful business tactics. Wayne covered that in Psalm 1. You know, how do I maximize my money to achieve eternal ends is the question. And the Lord is calling us to be what? Hard-nosed, clear-eyed, forward-thinking, astute people. This is the hard assertion against us, right? Unbelievers are better at this. They outpace disciples in their foresight, their ingenuity, their risk-taking. They study the world. They see opportunities. They take decisive action. We tend to be lethargic, passive, uncreative, not strategic in our thinking. When we spend money, we don't do it wisely. Our planning is careless. Our strategies naive and simplistic. There are parallels that he goes through in verses 10 through 12. As you look at those contrasts, 
Christ is saying present wealth is really a very little thing. In fact, it's not even ours. We are stewards, not owners. If we use our present possessions as if they belong to us and not to the Lord, we're, exact, we're acting exactly like that manager in verse 1. We, too, become guilty of malfeasance. What we possess, or better manage, is to be used to, master, to further our master's goals. The primary value of earthly wealth is that it is a school training us to handle what? True riches, which obviously refers to kingdom affairs. Shrewd people, therefore, make use of money in light of what? Eternal consequences. We can never serve God in money. The choice is inescapable, right? We, have, we can only have one master. Jesus wants us to understand we don't have the option to be the master of mammon, right? We are either stewards of it or servants of it, but those are our only two choices. God owns our wealth or it owns us. Now, all this brings us back to Matthew 6, 24. We all serve someone or something, and there is no partial discipleship to Jesus. There is no part-time employment by money. We must choose our ultimate loyalty, one or the other. When we choose Jesus, here's what's interesting. He doesn't take our money from us. He does what? Helps us turn it into an ally, okay? The preparations that we're making here now follow us to where we're going. Shrewd people, you know, if, if we're shrewd, then they're going to be what? Eternal friends, eternal rewards waiting for us. Fools serve money and leave it all behind. We, if we're shrewd, serve God and invest in eternity. Now, here's what's funny about this passage, right? We read through it and we think instinctively, I am so glad I'm not an embezzler. Well, guess what? You missed it. Because all of us are guilty of malfeasance with our master's possessions. Our church's campaign, imagine, is about renewing or reforming our strategy regarding the physical resources entrusted to the church, from its ties and gifts to its location, structures, how it, along with the staff and volunteers, accomplish the works that God intends for our body to do while we hold this temporary position, all right? So the interesting thing about this, you know, is uh, as our people, our elders, our counselors are looking at their approach, we need to do the same thing. Our par this parable that we went through doesn't do what? Doesn't talk about percentage, doesn't talk about amount. It stresses, though, the two things that we lack as we think about the campaigns, we think about our material possessions, which is what? Creativity and strategic thinking. One of the common questions Wayne and I hear as we go around these uh, life group events is, how in the world Am I supposed to give twice what I've been giving for the next three years? And what I'm telling you is where you begin with this is by applying these two concepts, strategy and creativity. You go to God in conversation with him and say, Lord, help me to figure this out. Have conversations with other people in your church and in your life and say, how do I bring this about? And then, my friends, don't be afraid to use your secular experiences to help accomplish this. Your master is coming. And by the way, he's coming to audit you. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you very, very much. In light of the fact that Jesus is coming to judge, let me lead us in prayer, please. Pray with me. Are you, um, are you understanding this? Make sure right now you approach the Lord in this sense. 
that there will be judgment. And I want to be wise for now and forever. Let, let me just put it this way. <clears throat> will you survive the great white throne judgment, non-believer? Scripture is very clear, no. I love you, so I'm going to cut straight with you. There is a real thing called hell, and it is eternal separation from God, and that is your future if you are not wise enough to recognize that you need to trust Jesus. You make, you make an awful God. But the real God loves you so much that he sent his only son to die on a cross to pay for your sin, to raise from the dead so that everyone who believes in him could have everlasting life. Trust him right now. There is only one way to pass judgment, and that is to trust Jesus. Trust him now. If you just prayed to trust Jesus, please raise your hand. Good. Amen. Father, I pray for all of us who are Christians, new and old Christians here. here. Here's what I want to pray. I pray for humility in us that we will eschew wickedness and yet we will be shrewd. That we'll commit to Scripture immersion, preparing always for the judgment of the Bema that is ours to come. In a word, please, Father, I pray that I live and my brothers and sisters live wisely. All God's people said, Amen.